podcasts ago, I had talked about seeing the lost daughter and how... Where is she? <laughs> you made the same joke. I made the same joke. And how I didn't really enjoy it. I, I thought it was well made. I thought Maggie Gyllenhaal's brilliant director... But ultimately, it wasn't for me. But I do recognize it's a technical achievement. But because the subject matter is so dark, and ultimately what it's about, without spoiling it, is about a person who is extremely selfish and just does not want to parent the kids that she has. And that, to me, as a parent, was very sad. Anyway, Gabe, who do we have with us today? Well, Stephen, today we have with us back again in the studio. What? Allie Burnett. <gasps> oh, hey. <laughs> Good to see you again, studio audience. Wow. Our live studio audience. Yeah. Applause. Yeah. Edit, edit applause in here. <laughs> Allie has been with me as we've been watching a lot of these movies. Um, Allie, what did you think of The Lost Daughter? So The Lost Daughter. I actually enjoyed more than I thought I would. I was skeptical by the title. So my quick initial response, which actually I hadn't really processed the film yet, but just now I realized one of the reasons that I liked the film is its exploration of this mother's, I guess, like mental state and the way in which she kind of relates to the world. I was immediately reminded of this short story that I read in college called The Yellow Wallpaper. It's a very famous story, so maybe some of you have heard of it. It's written by uh, American writer Charlotte Perkins Gilman. But essentially, in the yellow wallpaper, it's used as like this psychological story where this woman becomes obsessed with her yellow wallpaper while she's on like bed rest or something. I can't recall all the details, but Hmm. she becomes obsessed with this yellow wallpaper in her bedroom. And it essentially marks her descent into psychosis and her depression throughout the story. Mm. And um, yeah, that parallels that. Yeah, that parallels. Olivia Coleman's obsession with the doll. In the film, Olivia Coleman's character, as you're seeing these flashbacks throughout her life of kind of regret in her motherhood, she, in present day, kind of becomes obsessed with this young mother, this young mother's with her daughter, and she becomes obsessed with kind of like watching them, specifically the young mother. And as she's watching her, all these flashbacks continue to come up in kind of traumatic ways. And with that, she ends up actually taking, stealing this little girl's doll and buying clothes for it, cleaning it. I think at one point sleeping with it multiple times. She's misplacing it, worried that she's lost it, which parallels her own motherhood journey and how she was a very neglectful mother. I mean, she left her daughters for like three years. The worst. Abandoned um, her family. Mother. And then came back. (laughs) But that being said, I think that there are some strong roots in some early American literature. I think that parallels this film quite well. Yeah. Like I said, it's really difficult for me to recommend because, and I was talking about it with Gabe off podcast and he's like, yeah, it's like the worst thing I could ever imagine is a parent not wanting to parent and abandoning their children. It's like the worst thing ever. You have the most precious thing in the world in front of you and you're like, nah, I'm out. Yeah. So it's really hard for me to recommend. Although I enjoyed the movie, it's so hard to watch. I actually didn't have like a super hard time with it. I, I was worried that I would. I was skeptical that I would. But I think it's done in a way where you're not 
constantly press up against like how the kids are feeling. It's more like her perspective, the mother's perspective. I think if it was told more through like the kid's perspective, it would be a lot more emotionally difficult to watch. But because it's told through her selfish perspective and her coming to terms with the trauma, I don't know. It was, I guess it was like less emotional for me to watch. It's an interesting perspective to see the, the villainous aspect of Olivia Coleman mm-hmm. and then to try to process her resolution with her that maybe made it less abrasive and less intense than it would have been through the exactly. eyes of a child because the child can't process that. The child's just going to grow up with the damage. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I have yet to watch the film, so I'm going to do that. That's a hard one. I'm curious what you... You initially uh, described it as a story essentially like about parenting. And I'm fascinated with the topic. Yeah. Um, I think it's less about parenting. And the reason that story like came to my mind is because it's speaking to the conventions that are put on someone. And so like, mm-hmm. I think with Olivia Coleman's character, she's caught in the middle of like wanting to pursue her career and she's being really validated for her work. And then also just not having this desire to be with her kids, which is really sad and really heartbreaking. But also I think there's a realness for a lot of people at the same time. But I think it's also important to consider the fact that she seems to come from a traumatic background because she has mentions of her mom and basically her resenting her mom Mm -hmm. so i think there's certainly like some compassion you can have for her even though she's certainly an ill-fit parent i mean she abandons her kids yeah and there's multiple scenes where you're like okay i think that's a great perspective yeah because children of a family are always inheriting more or less their parents characteristics and it's up to them as they grow up what they can do with those things which is a fantastic segue i was gonna say into what we're actually talking about today. <laughs> Succession. Succession. Which is a family a story. A messed up family. It's a dysfunctional. So Succession was first pitched to me as a show that was on par with great shows such as Sopranos or Breaking Bad. Like it was pitched to me as something that was. Game of Thrones. <laughs> Minus the White Walkers. Minus the last two seasons. Uh, But it was pitched to me as something that I should definitely watch. And that will be, that will go down in history books as being one of the best shows of the decade, you know? So we started at season one, watched season ones, watched season two, and then watched season three. And so this focus will be on season three, but we'll also be talking about the whole show since we all just watched it. So we'll talk about spoilers in this. So spoiler warning going forward. Season one was one of the best first seasons I've ever seen for a television show. What happens in the end with Kendall essentially killing someone or murdering a young uh, well en- was it murder not considered murder English fellow. Uh, anyway, it was really intense. And then he just walks back to his sister's wedding and the show goes on from there. Was one of the craziest things I've ever seen after like an already insane season of twists and turns and then season two sort of goes into kendall's whole catatonic state and the whole show is about these kids who grew up with this father this very rich father who's in charge of a multimedia company think like apple like itunes and computers like or, or, or music like and, and theme parks and stuff like that and this father is completely uh tyrannical and just a terrible parent and all of the kids just want his affection and that plays into their adult 
And so he seems to be physically sort of on his way out, but also maybe mentally. And nobody knows if he's going to step down from the company or if he's just going to die off. And so the show is about his successor and all the kids are sort of fighting to see who's going to be the person who takes his spot. And all of their kids have different quirks and different personalities and different insecurities, which is a huge part of the show. And, uh, Kendall, who's the oldest of Not the younger the oldest. of the younger three children. I was making a joke because Connor like yeah. was Connor a different mom? Yeah. Okay. Different mom. But Kendall is the oldest of the youngest three children, is the one who seems to be the person who's in line the most because he's the oldest and he's the most uh, respectable, although he's had a past with drugs. And the whole second season, he's kind of just his dad's lackey. And he's almost like in this catatonic state the whole throughout the whole season. And then in the end of season two, he screws over his dad in front of everyone in America and the whole world to the press that his dad is a corrupt person and he decides he wants to try to overthrow him. <laughs> So that's where season three starts. And uh, yeah, we can get into it from there. Gabe, you want to talk about who's in it, the names of the people and the characters? Yeah, another segment of, can Gabe pronounce this name properly? And usually, no. (laughs) Well, I get a 51%, at least I think, record. This one should be easier. It's a mostly American cast. Yay. Or English. We have uh, the, none other than Brian Cox as Logan Roy, the patriarch of this family. Yeah, I know Brian Cox only from X-Men 2, X-Men United, a movie I've seen literally dozens of times. William Stryker? Yeah. I was piloting black ops missions in the jungles of North Vietnam where you were sucking on your mama's tit at Woodstock, Kelly. Don't lecture me about war. This already is a war. Anyway... Brian Cox is awesome. Yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Yeah, he's 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 a legend. He's a world class. And then his three children that are in line for the succession, you could say, are Jeremy Strong as Kendall Roy, Sarah Snook as Shiv Roy, and Kieran Culkin as Roman Roy. In that order, that's their age or their Kieran Culkin, if that last name sounds familiar, he is the brother of Macaulay Culkin. Kieran was the one in Scott Pilgrim, right? Yes. He was the gay friend of either him or his his other other brother michael sarah yeah something Ooh. there are more colkins rory colkin how many colkins are there's there? a lot of colkins what things are just colkin up and they all don't look alike okay and the actual eldest child who is sort of out of the game doing his own thing of brian cox is alan ruck as conroy alan ruck everyone knows from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. As, what was his name? Cameron. Cameron Fry. He's Does, like one of the most infamous characters he's like from the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I'll that, never forget him falling into the pool. Yeah. So Talking fun. about catatonic. Yeah. Oh, we have some other key players in this Game of Thrones style. Show. Battle Royale show. Yeah. Not the least of which is Nicholas Braun as Cousin Greg. Greg <laughs> Hirsch. I love Greg. An outsider. The weirdest character to introduce in the first episode pilot I've ever seen. He's the the Wayman. No, no. I totally understand him now. But when I first saw his appearance, I was like, (laughs) I can't believe they put that character in the pilot episode. It'd be like, what if Hot Pie sat on the Iron Throne? That's the point, though, is it's showing the contrast from the get-go. But it's brilliant. It was so well done, and that's why it was so shocking, because I've never seen anybody pull something like that off before. And I would be so excited to see if it is Cousin Greg that ends up taking oh, please. the mantle. Please. Of... That would be a total brand move, right? Yeah. Everybody loves a good story. <laughs> okay. Moving on. We have... Uh, what is this gentleman's name? 
Matthew McFadden as Tom Wamsgams, who is the husband of Sarah Snook's character, Shaban. One of Allie's favorite actors. From Pride and Prejudice, right? Oh, yeah. Mr. Darcy. Which is his only like, massive credit that everyone would probably be familiar with. Oh, that yeah. movie's amazing. Everyone, everyone should watch it. With he, subtitles, even more enriching. He True. Is another, he, he's actually probably my favorite character. He is a very singular presence in the show in his uh, humor and in his... Yes. The way he pro- I love deals Tom. with the family, yeah. He's a great actor, and he, out of everyone, all the actors, he was like the frontliner to get an actual award because of his performance. Yeah, Tom is the one who I can Matthew, see. Matthew, what's his last name? McFadden. Yeah, he's a great actor. And, he's an English um, gentleman too, isn't he? He is. Yeah. And you you couldn't tell by how well his accent is. Here. Yeah, Have he, you seen Pride and Prejudice? I have not, no. It's a little... No. You gotta see before it before my time. You gotta see it. He said before his time. Check it. I'm a we. I'm a, just a young boy. I'm just a wee lad. I'm the same age as you. Moving on, we have uh, Jay Smith Cameron as Jerry Kelman, who is the legal counsel, I think, to Brian Cox, and is sort of a major player that is always yep. uh, on the side of these other characters. A uh, dick pic, anyone? <laughs> Amazing. We also have Peter Friedman as Frank Vernon and Scott Nicholson as Coulson, David Rash as Carl. These are all people, secondary characters that are hovering the main Roy family. They just like are mooching off of the, the richness of the family. Yeah. Also, him. Okay, now we're in the tough names. This is Logan Roy's wife is played by, which would be like his third or fourth wife in the show, is played by Hiam Abbas. Haim, I think. Haim Abbas. I, are, are you a boss? I'm, I'm a boss. <laughs> I am the worst person to be reading these names. And that is Marsha Roy. It's the best thing ever. Uh, there's also this guy, Stewie, who is a friend of Kendall's, who comes to be an antagonistic figure as he tries to take over the company, played by Arian or Arian Moyet, <laughs> who is in the beginning of Spider-Man No Way Home as the detective. Yeah, he's really good. And then there's a couple cameos this season because I think we're done with the main cast. Yeah. There's a couple cameos this season. The first one being Adrian Brody. Oh, yeah. Who was just in one episode. He was like a shareholder of the company, of the Roy company. This whole season sort of became to be about trying to persuade the shareholders. And then this other character toward the latter half of the season, starting I think in episode seven, which is Kendall's birthday, was Skarsgård, Alex Skarsgård. As uh, another media company that the Roy company is trying to acquire so that they can puff themselves up to be more formidable. Yeah. So that they can use their company then as leverage and maybe do whatever they want with it. Because they were in some hot water throughout the season. To get bought out. Yeah. Anyway, that's the cast and a little bit of the plot. I don't even know where to begin talking about this show. What were your first impressions of the show for both of you? I know what Stevens are. Because he passionately described to me both the genius and his some of his personal feelings feelings in term you know some of his negative feelings i do think it's genius i think it's well done i think it's well written i think it's well directed apart from the camera movement certainly well acted very well acted yeah so all the above technically it's a great show well you had some problems initially you said with the way it was shot yeah i said the apart from the camera movements you want to elaborate? No. Okay, fair. Moving on. Allie, what do you think? Or what were your first impressions of Succession in those opening episodes? Um, I think I was drawn in by the characters. I'm very character-driven, as are most people, I would say. And 
there are such strong characters and it's about a family you know like who who can't get hooked in by that when you have strong characters it's about a family so i think the fact that the antagonist of the show is logan the father is really intriguing it's kind of like a magnet right where all the the kids are just continually trying to earn his love and acceptance or approval and they're continually (laughs) let down (laughs) And one of the lines that summed up a lot of Logan's character for me in the third season was when Shiv is actually talking to her mom, so Logan's ex-wife, and her mom is basically like, I shouldn't have had kids. Yeah. And Shiv's like, well, maybe you guys should have had dogs. And the mom says, oh, no, Logan couldn't have had dogs. He would have just kicked them or essentially abused them to find out which ones would come back. And that was like such a profound line revealing where Logan's heart is. His true nature. His true nature. So you see throughout the seasons, like you're kind of questioning, like, does he actually love his kids? Like he obviously, he seems like he wants one of them to succeed and like the family business to stay intact and all of that. But then there's just all of this abuse and mm-hmm. manipulation and just cruelty, honestly, um, in a lot of circumstances. But then you also see these soft moments where mm-hmm. he might be approving someone or building someone up and falsely encouraging someone, etc. And that line was like, oh, okay. That is his nature. He's essentially like playing with the people around him, his own kids, consistently abusing them to kind of see if they'll be loyal to him, continually be loyal to him Mm -hmm. and love him. I mean, using that term, I don't know, loosely. Mm -hmm. But um, so that was, I mean, that is super interesting and engaging, like as, I guess, a main way to capture the audience as a riveting show because it's ultimately like yes there's politics and cultural commentary it's a rich satire there's really clever hilarious parts but it's ultimately a story about relationship right and Mm -hmm. i think that's what makes it a good show Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard this show described as people have said every so often a show comes around that really emulates the culture that we are currently in. Embodies. Yeah, embodies it. And this show is considered to be sort of a reflection of the culture that we find ourselves in now, both thematically and plot driven, but also emotionally and with the interpersonal relationships between the characters. That's actually a great point I hadn't really fully fleshed out in my head before is in terms of how appropriate it is for its time. Like even thinking a few casts ago when we were talking about being the Ricardos and what I Love Lucy meant to the 50s of you know 20, 20th century America. Succession is a show that, like you said, perfectly capitalizes no pun intended mm-hmm. on everything that the 21st century's western you know late stage corporate capitalism has to offer the world and all its machiavellian uh, draconian all-out battle royale amongst a, a family no less right. and what what greater way to tell that story through you know the parent to the child and that is really the original story is what we've inherited from our it's the great father wound right yeah, exactly. And I think the perfect example of that, I mean, every kid carries that in this show, but says particularly Kendall as sort of a focal point of the show, at least the first season, because every season sort of 
kind of focuses on a different kid, right? Like the first season, Kendall is still more or less in line to follow his father. Then he falls away and Brian Cox is playing with Sarah Snook as his successor. And then the third season, it's kind of Kieran Culkin's time to shine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And every every kid gets a chance to face that head on Mm -hmm. and see what they're really made of as they're coming to terms with what their father, what that role is. Right in their life and and what who they are as people mm-hmm. because they have so much of their father in them mm-hmm. whether or not they like to see it and my favorite parts of the show this show just kept getting better for me as it went on and particularly in the third season in the last few episodes when we have there's a scene where um Kendall is sitting across from Logan Jeremy Strong and Brian Cox are at a table and and Kendall's like I I'm a good guy <laughs> I'm a good guy. I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. And Brian Cox is like, no, no, you're not. And just completely dismantles Kendall. Yeah. And and he does that through the end of the season with like his children finally, finally like teaming up against him. And he has miraculously the upper hand once again, because, you know, Logan Roy never fails. He's never beat. Mm-hmm. The, I'm so excited to see what happens next in the fourth season because we're finally going to get to see all of these children on the back foot mm-hmm. uh, in, in a united front, hopefully, more or less. I feel like they've been on the back foot throughout the whole show, though. There's, yeah, but there's never something as gratifying, though, about yeah. the, them teaming up. Them being yes. united. Yeah. It's like the, when the Avengers assemble in Endgame. It's like, <laughs> on your left, and finally we have like some solidarity because the whole time yeah. it's always been for selfish motivation. Every kid has a, an opportunity to like, mm-hmm. not so much Kieran cause he's always in the shadow of his father, but mm-hmm. Kendall and Shaban at different points throughout the show have an opportunity to make a move and it's mm-hmm. never, there's never enough m- momentum mm-hmm. uh, or unity amongst the front. And they've all been individually dismantled over the last three yeah. seasons. And the thing that united them in the end of the season was also really fascinating when Kendall Finally, and he again, he's the oldest of these three younger siblings. He breaks down emotionally, intellectually, mentally, whatever, in front of them in a remote location and tells them what he did, that he that he drove a car while he was high into a river in England and accidentally killed this kid that was uh, one of the waiters at Shiv's wedding. And... Then he breaks down. He's in his most vulnerable space in his moment. And both his sister Shiv and his younger brother, Roman, they try to comfort him by different ways. Shiv tries to be a little bit more motherly and comforting. And Roman just tries to laugh it off and make a joke about it. perverse sense of humor. Yeah. Who hasn't killed a kid? But ultimately, ultimately, it it was so great to see these characters finally being vulnerable and real with each other. Yeah. In a way that like... The actual event that took place that brought them to that place of vulnerability was something that was undeniable in its genuineness. Like they couldn't really laugh it off. They couldn't really make the situation better. And they couldn't just jab at one another, which is a thing that they normally do as siblings in this like kind of messed up family. And so it was really great to see them be vulnerable and have to be there. Like they were kind of forced to be there for each other in that moment and then that in almost the very next scene is the scene that leads them into being united as a front against their father who has already put moves in to dismantle them from taking over his company but yeah i loved that scene it was like one of my favorite scenes in the whole show i think just seeing kendall on the floor emotionally broken shaved head 
who apparently Jeremy Strong as an actor is a method actor who's so committed to his role as Kendall that he came to set one day with a shaved head and just kind of said, I thought my character in this kind of mental breakdown, emotional state would do this. And, and they just had to roll with it yeah. because they never really even addressed that. Absolutely. Pretty awesome. Brian Cox has some interesting things to say about that, I think. Brian Cox was asked once by, this is another little interesting bit, by Stephen Colbert, who loves the show. He asked Brian Cox with the whole cast around him, he said, do you think Logan Roy actually loves any of his children? At, like, you know, you play his character, you know his character really well. And if so, which one? He said, maybe one and it would be Shiv. And I thought that that was really interesting insight, you know, from Brian Cox himself, who plays that character. He has more grace for her. Uh He doesn't have grace. But it feels like the grace has bounds, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it feels like he never really fully intended, even despite his statements in the second season, he never really intended for her to be able to take over the company with his hesitation. But what is interesting... But, but he's not going to let her go to jail. That's true. Yeah, he, I, There's that father-daughter dynamic that is something that the other two just don't have. What is interesting also in the second season on that note is to see... That's the season where Kendall is the broken horse lapdog of Brian Cox because mm-hmm. Brian Cox holds the ultimate trump card of, I know what you did and I'm here to protect you. Mm-hmm. And there's a great scene in the episode where there's a terrorist scare or a shooting scare in the Waystar... Royco building and Logan Roy is constantly asking where's Kendall is Kendall okay and there's this what seems like the the purest form of concern yeah that mm-hmm. that Logan Roy has in these three seasons of succession exhibited mm-hmm. and I thought that was fascinating we <laughs> especially for Kieran we never get a, even a taste of that and the only approval that Kieran ever gets from his father is when he secures some kind of big mm-hmm. uh, deal or lands the... Yeah, I think Kieran, I think uh, Roman and Connor are the least loved. But I think I think there is a special, maybe not special is the right word, but I think there's a place, a specific dynamic between Logan and Kendall. You might not call it love, but there's certainly something there. He was like the figurative firstborn. He was like the firstborn mm-hmm. that was meant to be. And it, mm-hmm. I'm sure Logan feels all, the greatest amount of disappointment and perhaps disdain that Kendall isn't able to fill the shoes that mm-hmm. Logan would have had mm-hmm. him. Like he said, he was set up to be that man in the first season. But as we hear definitively from Logan in the third season, he's just not that guy. He's not mm-hmm. a killer, mm-hmm. as Logan says. Ironically. Or in the second season, I think he says that. Just you don't ultimately have what it takes to be me. Yeah. Whether or not that's what you need in this day and age to succeed mm-hmm. in this business, you just don't have it and you'll never be like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was something I actually took note of. I was the moral distinction that is brought up between Kendall and his dad. Exactly what you said. But then also like coupled with the with the end, with the confession, as Stephen brought up, and this almost cleansing he gets from his brother and sister, specifically actually Roman, who says like, it sounds a lot like it's not murder. He says something like that. Like, it sounds a lot like you tried to help him a little, like that type of thing. Like I would have ran from that. Yeah. And there was this, yeah, almost like this distinction too, by the fact that Kendall feels repentance. Mm-hmm. We never get that moment from Logan, and we probably never will. Yeah, he's too far along, mm-hmm. too far gone. You know, mm-hmm. he's 70, 80 years old, and you can't 
I feel like reach that person mm-hmm. that he is. Shiv's actually maybe the most like him in terms of in that respect. Just looking that ruthless at ruthless quality. Yeah, looking at her relationship, her marriage with Tom, and how <gasps> horrible it is. What and an just, incredible dynamic! And almost like as an audience, at least for me, I felt almost this sense of justification for Tom going against her in the end, and like yeah. mm-hmm. because he realizes in that season. I am unloved. She doesn't love me. Yep. And okay, well then where do I go from here? How do I secure power? And he teams up with Greg. Greg, the only person who was ever loyal to him. Mm -hmm. Like they have a more- Their relationship. Yes. I love it. It's so funny. I, I was so delighted when that glass scene came on and you see like Logan beats the kids and then he walks out of the room and you see Tom there. And And he he pats him on the shoulder. Pats him on the shoulder. And he walks away and Tom comes in the room mm-hmm. and he's like, Shiv, mm-hmm. is everything okay? And you're just like, <laughs> like you're, you're there as the audience processing it with Shiv. Cause yes. Shiv's like, she's slowly she's putting rattled. it to, yeah, she's, she's starting to figure it out. And she's like, I, it's, she's in shock. And then she's like, oh, we're fine. And then she walks a few steps away and she starts to break down and mm-hmm. Tom comes up again behind her and he's like, Hey, <laughs> the nod to that is that in that conversation, Shiv said to Kendall and Roman, like someone must have tipped them off, and yeah. and Tom was the only one that she told. Mm-hmm. Right. And the touch on the shoulder from Logan to Tom was like confirmation, implying that yeah, Tom was the one that leaked it to them, <laughs> meaning that really that dismantles Shiv's and Tom's whole relationship in the show, which has already been on the rocks, you know, since before their marriage. <laughs> And this plays into that. So Tom is now seemingly more loyal to her dad than, you know, his actual wife, which is, you know, says volumes. But well, I think it's also maybe a little bit of a screw you. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little vindictive, but he's also... I don't know if their relationship's even going to recover Oh, no, 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 no. It's over. (laughs) There's so much dysfunction already and weirdness, like... I don't know. I could see in a twisted way it surviving. Maybe. Maybe there is a place. The power struggle. Maybe the show can end with some healing, you know. Well, the whole point, too, of like of their relationship, she's constantly feeling like she's the one in power. She's the one with the upper hand. And yeah. so if there is a, a power shift that actually happens, and maybe there won't be like a true power shift, but if there is, that could change the dynamic of her maybe valuing him more. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, exactly. that it, there was a scene at some point in the show where they discuss, they break down to her face like the, that's why she chose Tom was because he was the safe option. She was marrying down so that she had the security. Yeah, that's why she denied the love interest, the, like the other lover that she had in season one, who Mate. she had had an on again, off again relationship with. Yeah, yeah exactly. Incredible group dynamic. Mm-hmm. The last thing I wanted to say regarding Kendall's character was throughout the three seasons, it kind of goes in narrative circles where like you have the start of season one with Logan's stroke, which is easy to forget like in retrospect, yeah. but the start of the season starts with that and and his kids kind of frantically like, okay, well, who's going to be in charge while he's not available. Yeah. Um, and then like the dementia scene in season three where he basically loses his mind for an yes. hour. Scary. Yeah. Where they're also, what do we do? Like no one knows for it to be a show called Succession. No one knows how to succeed. And I think that's 
essentially his failure because he has not prepared anyone Mm -hmm. and he doesn't truly want to hand over the reins. So both times reveal his children and the team are ill-equipped in the face of the decapitation that looms over Logan throughout the seasons. Yet there is often mention of the type of like eternal quality he possesses. So I thought that was super interesting. And then also like speaking of narrative circles, specifically with the character of Kendall and how he's constantly, it reminded me of Sisyphus, the Greek character who's constantly pushing this boulder this rock up a hill like almost there almost there and then it rolls back down yeah for eternity and forever and ever he's cursed to keep pushing this rock up and it falling back down and that's kind of what kendall feels like because he has this repetition of failure against the main antagonist which is his father and he's caught in this loop ultimately miserable and empty in the end all in his attempt to puff himself up but it continually leads him to a state of either self-deprecation or in the end of the season, repentance, which I actually thought was refreshing because it is this, like Steven said, this moment of vulnerability rather than either puffing himself up or just feeling super depressed and empty. You get this moment of rawness where he's like, this is what I'm holding inside and I need to let it out. And this is what I did. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said before, his siblings almost acting as like a priestly role of cleansing. Like, Hmm. no, that wasn't actually you intentionally murdering someone. And yeah, there is this like moment, I think as an audience that we feel that, okay, maybe his character is going in a different direction. Maybe there's some growth that's going to be happening. Gabe, what was your first reaction to watching this show? I know it was really hard for you to get through season one. There were a few particular episodes that I had to stop watching partway through because it was so nerve-wracking, like anxiety-inducing. Uh, the one I always think of is, I think in episode four or five, when Logan is on the verge of being voted out by the board because Kendall's put this movement in motion. Kendall's like across New York to secure a single board member's vote, and he can't make it back because of New York traffic, and he's on the phone, and I was so stressed out I had to stop because Logan's in the room staring people down. He shouldn't be in the room, first of all, and he's staring people down, and his mere presence and his gaze is enough to cause like multiple members on the board to just back down, including his son, Kieran, or Roman, so... But I was I was shocked from the get go just how much I enjoyed the show. I never I, I knew how good it was just by every single person saying how good it was. But I never expected to enjoy it as much as I did. Mm-hmm. And aside from the incredible writing, like the quality of the writing and the story, it is relentlessly entertaining. And it has that Aaron Sorkin style quality writing where it's quick and it's witty. Mm-hmm. But it takes it a step farther and it brings it. It makes it modern. And each character has his own version of that quick-witted, sarcastic, sardonic, mm-hmm. joking mm-hmm. back and forth with each other. The bantering. Like for Kendall, it's this bizarre, familiar to me now, being sort of somewhat involved in the corporate sector of an industry, that that completely worthless vernacular of like empty buzzwords, corporate mm. lines of just like, what are you saying right now? But it make they're like, you could, you know what he's saying, but it feels so empty and, mm-hmm. and trite. And then like the way Shiv and Roman go back and forth with their incredibly pointed and often uh, like salacious insults. And it's very mm. like intense. It's very dark <laughs> and it's very gross so much of the time. And then like the way Tom interacts with Greg, everything is so hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly laughing out loud by myself in my, in my studio apartment, thinking like, this is amazing. I've never 
watched a show like this before. Maybe it's just me. I'm I'm sure, you know, it's not the first time someone's done something like this, but it's unique though. It certainly is unique in the way that you get this darkness and how it plays off of this humor. I mean, I guess that's satire for you, but yeah. it is hilarious and both eerie at the same time. Yeah. And amidst all that, there's that that constant through line of this critique against that modern corporate you know, hegemony, that capitalistic structure that is so inherently dysfunctional and debaucherous. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you feel gross watching these people Mm -hmm. because they're just like the worst people. Mm -hmm. But you're like rooting for them somehow because you want them to succeed and work their way up to that point of that cathartic and transcendent self-realization where they can become good people if that's even possible who knows yeah Mm -hmm. but i would love to see this show like wrap up in a tight five seasons just like i hope for every good show and see these characters realize that yeah i don't know if it's possible like we said for logan (laughs) yeah i don't know about logan i don't even know about shiv i bet shiv could make it there you think i think i think kendall well, Kendall's Definitely already gotten could. like some of the way. Yeah. I think Shiv and Roman have a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. And I don't even know what Connor's going to do for the rest yeah. of the show. I love Connor. He is a wild <laughs> I just card. I love his disillusionment. <laughs> yeah, he is a psycho. And I don't know. But he's kind. He's kind. More than the rest of them. He's kind in his in his way. But in also his own way, he is the most psychotic of them all. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> because he's the one who thinks he has a chance to be president. And to be honest, he kinda does. anyone could be president yeah. nowadays, especially with his connection. Yeah. But it is he is like the most out of touch, I guess would yeah. be the way to say it. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. He just doesn't get it, you know, yeah. like the other. Yeah. Or does he? <laughs> Maybe he does. Who am I to judge? I'm not in the... One of my know. favorite lines from that season, just on a lighter note, is when... Tom, I can't remember exactly, to paraphrase, Tom basically is like to Greg, oh yeah, you're just like a few deaths away from becoming the weirdest king ever. (laughs) Eighth in line? Greg, you marry her, you're a plane crash away from becoming Europe's weirdest king. Don't be silly. Dude, you off a couple of hemophiliacs and you'll be the king of Luxembourg. You'd sound like a fancy cookie. It's actually a grand duchy. It's something to do with the Congress of Vienna. It's, I guess, really complicated. She doesn't like to talk about it, although we do talk about it quite a bit. Oh, see, now, Roman. Get in there, Greg. If Roman marries her, he'll invade France. That interaction, and also, I would just love to get a quick quote from you guys and maybe what you thought some memorable scenes were, like one scene that stuck out to you in particular, maybe, across... Maybe just the last season, because there there are several in the last half of the season amazing uh, scenes, and the one that I keep thinking of is, is the one on the boat where Logan Roy finally gets everyone to sit. You know, his children and his that's in season two. His council. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was season, season two, two, wasn't it? But yeah. I was actually going to say that same scene. Yeah, because that was one of the craziest scenes in the whole show to me. He's like, someone has to take the fall essentially for yeah. this takeover mm-hmm. or the the lawsuit, whatever it is. And everyone's jumping at each other's throats because no one wants to be the fall guy. The craziest thing about that scene is that every family member is up to that point in their lives so used to being jabbed at. Bullied. Yeah, like by everyone in the family. They're all used to just being like, well, you're a piece of shit too, you know, And, and here's why. And they're like, yeah. That's true, but here's why you're terrible and you should go to jail, you know? Yep. And it just kept going and going and going. That scene lasted so long and it was so intense and and also like comedic in a really satirical way. But it was so intense because you're thinking the whole time like, wow, this family is 
extremely messed up. They are used to things that people should not be used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're treated by their family members a way that family members should not treat each other. And they're accustomed to it. Like they're so used to it that it's second nature for them to just quickly retort toward an, a family member in, in a non-loving way, but a sadistic and imprisoning way. No pun intended. You know, I think everything Roman says could be an HR problem at any sure. other, yeah. you know, level. It's amazing. I think, like I said, I think they're the scenes that we already kind of talked about, like the scene with Shiv and her mom. It was just, just because it's, it revealed oh, yeah. kind of like that. Mm-hmm. There's that great birthday scene with Kendall <laughs> not letting Shiv and Roman into his treehouse. Oh, yes, that one's so good. That but also when when Kendall raps to his dad. Jeez. He's like, L to the O. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. That's insane. Yeah. So we're going to end here because we could talk about this show for a long time. But really quick, I want to shout out that uh, Adam McKay of Don't Look Up fame and the big short and vice and he directed uh comedies such as anchorman anchorman 2 talladega nights and uh stepbrothers is one of the executive producers of the show along with will ferrell their relationship privately the company that they started they're really no longer friends publicly anymore i think we were reading a variety article that adam mckay was sort of talking about how him and will ferrell's relationship fell apart but the same minds who bring you sort of the genius behind those satirical, political, societal, you know, corporate kind of films are the same minds behind this. But the showrunner, his name is Jesse Armstrong, and uh, he's only 51. And I think that's really awesome. This show is so intelligent that it seems like people much smarter than ourselves and much older than ourselves and wiser than ourselves are in charge of this show. But to be only 51 and in charge of such an intelligent and abrasive show, both thematically and culturally, is uh, quite an achievement. And kudos to him. I didn't realize he was a writer on a couple iconic British comedies like In the Loop mm-hmm. um, and Peep Show, just like sketch comedy show that shows he has the, the chops for writing this sort of material. I didn't know he was a Four Lions writer. That's the one with Riz Ahmed. Yeah, but really good show. We all here, I think, could recommend it. It is very intense, so be prepared for a lot of twists and turns and a lot of emotional turmoil and stress. Sometimes it's not easy. Yeah. And don't be afraid to pause it walk away and come back (laughs) true but do come back because it's awesome yeah i feel like the closest thing i can think of is game of thrones because it doesn't have the the setting and the swords but it has Mm -hmm. that level of what is essentially political espionage and intrigue and Mm -hmm. cutthroat dealings you know it's yeah missing the blood but figuratively it's all there on the table and under the table. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's everything we stopped having in the later seasons of Game of Thrones that made Game of Thrones so iconic. And I think when this show is done, we'll have something that can stand the test of time. Sure. Unlike Game of Thrones. Yep. Uh, May it rest in peace. Is the theme song of Succession. By none other than Nicholas Bertel from uh, Don't Look Up. Bonk.